Thank you for listening to the Grace Chapel Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker, Rod Hall. For more information about our church, visit our website at gracechapel.cc or follow us on social media at Grace Chapel Ohio. Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I'd like to thank our worship team for leading us to the throne and thank Pastor Kurt for blessing us as we go into uh, this new year here. So good morning, everybody, and again, welcome here to Grace Chapel. Uh, Good news, I lost five pounds this week. (laughs) I saved my beard. (laughs) Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, Rod, your beard doesn't weigh five pounds. And I'll say to you, you've never seen me eat. (laughs) It's a little bit sloppy, you know, so I, I know, that's gross. That's what happens when you work with teenagers for 34 years. (laughs) But no, I'm happy again to be here this last Sunday of 2023. And I would welcome you to open your Bibles or click on your digital devices to the book of the Gospel of John. And we're gonna be in John chapter 11 for the most part this morning. And as Pastor Kurt mentioned, You know, some of us have been waiting for 2024. We're done with 2023. We might be glad to see it go. We might be looking at 2024 as apprehension. But this message this morning is going to focus on kind of the power of waiting. And as the 20th century poet Thomas Earl Petty said, the waiting is the hardest part sometimes. And we're gonna see how even though waiting can be difficult, God can use the waiting in great and wonderful ways. And so I would invite you to uh, join me again in John chapter 11, the Gospel of John. Of course, that's in the New Testament, fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you get to Acts, Romans, or Corinthians, and so forth, you go a little too far. So John chapter 11. Let's go ahead and and go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to teach us this morning. Father, I thank you for uh, this last Sunday of 2023. We look forward to what you have for us in 2024. and We thank you and we show gratitude for the blessings that you have given to us throughout this year that's coming to an end. And we anticipate, we look forward to your continued blessing in in this new year. And so help us as a body of believers to resolve that even when we are waiting to hear from you, that we know you are moving and you're acting on our behalf. Help us as a body of believers and individually as well to look at 2024 as an opportunity to show others what the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus means to us and can mean for them. And we pray in your name, amen. Well, we're gonna kind of do things backward this morning. We're gonna look at the story of Lazarus, a very well-known miracle of Jesus in the book of John. But we're gonna start at the end. And then we'll kind of do like a Paul Harvey thing and look at the rest of the story of the beginning of the chapter. 
So let's go ahead and start out in verse 38. John chapter 11, verse 38, we read the following. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So here we are, Lazarus' tomb, and we're going to see uh, Lazarus and what he meant to Jesus, Lazarus' relatives, what the disciples thought about all this. But here we see that Lazarus is now dead, and Jesus is at the tomb. So the stone lay against it. You know, it won't be the last time that Jesus has a stone moved, except the next time that we see this, Jesus is going to be on the other side of that stone, and that stone that gets rolled away is going to reveal an empty grave. It goes on to say in verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. I kind of like the way the King James puts it. It simply says, he stinketh. <laughs> it does. But the importance here of including this warning about the stench that would certainly overpower anyone nearby is to show that this man, Lazarus, was indeed dead. You see, when a person dies, their body goes through four stages of, of decomposition. There's autolysis, bloat, active decay, and skeletonization. Now, during this first stage, the, what happens when the heart stops beating, the uh, carbon dioxide builds up, and that creates an acidic environment inside the body and inside the cells. And these cells begin to rupture, and, and they leak enzymes throughout the whole cadaver. And then in the second stage, these, these enzymes, they begin creating gases. And these gases can lead to bloating, there's discoloration, and then along with bacteria, they can create the most unpleasant and uh, foul odor, and that's called putrefaction. And so it's evidence when, when Martha says, look, Jesus, this is not going to be nice. This is going to be bad. It, it is telling not only us as readers, but those who were there in the crowd, that yes, indeed, this man is dead. And so she tells us what everybody already knows. Lazarus has been dead for a long time, four days actually, and Jesus uh, has been warned. You know, she's saying, look, Jesus, this, if you'd been here earlier, but now, this is, this is not gonna be pretty. And, you know, it makes me glad that Jesus is not afraid to visit us in the stinky places in our lives, you know? Uh, no matter where we find ourselves, and sometimes that stinky place, nobody else knows about. It's, it's not like a body where it's so evident. A lot of times we hide it, and it's inside of us. And we put on a mask, perhaps, or we put on a show because we don't want people to know. Sometimes, uh, these stinky places are covered up by all the newness and glitz and glamour. Not too long ago, Donna and I took a trip out to Vegas. Now, I'm not a gambler. It wasn't my purpose to go out to Vegas to hit the casinos. We went out to see a concert, 
But we spent four days in New Vegas. And one Sunday afternoon, we decided to walk down to Old Vegas. What I didn't know was you had to pass through ugly Vegas to get there. And it was not a pretty sight. We saw homeless tent city. We saw people passed out from alcohol. We saw people literally with bizarre behavior from whatever perhaps drugs they were taking. And, and so it's a part of Vegas that you're not gonna see on the travel brochures. You're not gonna see advertised on, on the walls of the casinos or anything. It's a stinky part of Vegas. And I can't help but wonder, is this the kind of place that Jesus would come to minister when he says, I've not come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. It was a scene of abandonment, hopelessness, and hunger, kind of a, a mummified humanity, just like Lazarus would have looked like a mummy, perhaps, coming out from behind that, that stone there. Well, the truth of the matter is we don't have to go across the country to find people who are hurting, to find people who are lost, to find people who are in dire straits. We can, we can look at our own neighborhoods. We can look at perhaps even our own families. What we just need to do is to ask God to use us right here and now where we are. And that's my prayer for us in 2024, that God was sparking us an urgency to reach out and as we're so well known for, to win the lost at any cost here at Grace Chapel. But Jesus is unfazed by Martha's caution. He goes on to perform one of his greatest miracles, and we read in the next several verses here this interaction between Jesus and the crowd and Lazarus. So verse 40, we continue the story. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, I love that verse. It teaches us that we, like Jesus, depend upon our heavenly Father. You know, Jesus says, I do my Father's will. Look, Jesus was not in this for his own glory. Jesus was in this for the glory of his Father. He goes on to say in verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. The Father listens to us. Look, even when we think we're not hearing from God, he is listening to us whenever we pray. When he heard these things, he, he cried out with a loud, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, I don't really know the purpose of why Jesus shouted. I mean, he wouldn't even have to say anything and his, his supernatural power could have brought Lazarus. My, my suspicion is he wanted everybody to hear that he was calling out Lazarus and Lazarus specifically. Okay, maybe there were other people in the tomb, I do not know, but he was calling out Lazarus and he wanted to make sure that the people there knew that he was about to demonstrate his power. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It reminds me about, I don't know, 30 some years ago perhaps, at a church I was uh, involved in the Easter cantata. And my role was to play Lazarus, which I loved because I didn't have to talk and they barely saw me because when the person playing Jesus called out, Lazarus come forth, I came walking in slowly, doing my best Boris Karloff imitation, okay? Big sheet over me and everything. And then these little kids that are in the crowd there started crying real loud when they saw me. So I guess it maybe had the effect they were looking for. But Lazarus, he's looking probably somewhat like a mummy. He comes stumbling out of the cave. He's wrapped in burial clothes and Jesus says, un bind him and let him go. And, and I think this is a, 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 a command that is rich in imagery to those who were in attendance and for us as well, because Jesus is saying, look, if you are my follower, I expect you to help those who are bound. I want you to go and help unbind people. I don't care if it's a person who hasn't showered in a month, I don't care what that person's economic status is, I don't care what that person's uh, skin color is, I don't care what language they speak. Our job, our mission here, if we are to be ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, is to help people who are bound up with the problems in life. And just as Jesus told these onlookers to unbind Jesus, he is calling on you and I to help unbind people who are especially, who are in bondage spiritually. And I think that's what the church is meant to, to, be, to do, that's why we're here. Loosening people of the stuff that binds them. Stuff that keeps them from the fullness of life, shame, regret, insecurities, fear, and expectations. You know, many people suffer from these bondages. The question is, can they find a person of grace and understanding and forgiveness in me and in you? And more than likely, we all know someone who is going through life and they need unbound. They are held hostage either by things in the present or things that happened to them in the past. And so who in our lives might God be calling out to us to help unbound them, to help unbind them, and that we should start praying that God would bring those people in our lives. So that's kind of the end of the story. We see the great miracle, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Well, let's go back to verse one where it all starts and kind of see again, like I said, the rest of the story. John chapter 11, verse one, we read the following. Now, a certain man was ill. Now, there's not much detail. In fact, this story only happens in the book of John. I'd have to imagine if, if we saw this in Luke's gospel, because he was a physician, he was a man of detail, we might see some more information about what kind of illness. We don't know from what he was suffering. But it says, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So Lazarus is the brother of these two sisters, Martha and Mary. They were followers of Jesus. And it's interesting, the name Lazarus is the Greek form of Eleazar, 
which means God is my help. And we certainly will see that come into play. We'll continue in verse two. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, we've all experienced seeing loved ones go through illness, whether it's a child, it's maybe got something like an ear infection or uh, a friend, perhaps with a a more serious illness. Uh, We've all gone through that. We've all been sick ourselves. And so we, we can all identify perhaps with Mary and Martha at this point because we've had loved ones who have been sick. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we call out to God and we ask for his healing touch on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of our loved ones. And here we see Lazarus' sisters doing the same thing here in verse three. It says, the sisters sent to him, meaning Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And so they're making a direct plea. They are asking, saying, look, Jesus, Lazarus, our brother, you love him. He is ill. And there's an expectation there, obviously. If they're sending word to Jesus, it's urgent. They want him to come. They want him to show up. They want him to come and, and heal their brother. Now, like I said before, John does not reveal the gospel the reason for Lazarus' condition. We don't know if it's cancer. We don't know if it's a heart condition, pneumonia. There could be any number of problems. At this point, we don't really even see how severe of an illness it is. But what John does tell us is that there was a personal connection between Jesus and Lazarus. He whom you love is ill. And you know, God is all about relationships. Uh, That's why you and I are here this morning. He created us because he wanted a relationship with us. That's why he came to earth. That's why we celebrated Christmas last week. You know, Emmanuel, God with us. And whether we are preoccupied with illness, problems at work, relationship issues, crises at school, here's one thing that I've learned about wading through the trials of life. And that's our first point on the outline. Nobody is exempt from waiting. Nobody, we all have to wait. We wait upon the Lord. We wait to find out about an interview. We wait to find out about test scores. We wait to find out about uh, doctor's tests. We wait to find out about college entrance. We wait and we wait and we wait and nobody is exempt from waiting. If you've ever been sick, you know, you get a, a, a cold that lasts a month. You you think, is this ever going to stop? Why do I have to wait so long to get healthy? Well, Charles Spurgeon says this about our vulnerability. It's on the screen here. He says, the love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. In, in, In other words, Nobody is exempt from waiting. We all pass through periods of time where we just have to expect that God will act on our behalf. You know, recently, uh, a colleague of mine lost a, a brother to cancer. Now, this person that passed away was a pastor, 
family, children, a workout enthusiast. He never smoked a day in his life. Came down with lung cancer. Lasted about a year. And so you, you hear and you read about these things and you probably know people have gone through that. And it just drives home that idea that nobody is exempt from infirmities, as Spurgeon tells us there. Nobody likes to wait. And Lazarus was a loved one of Jesus. The fact of the matter is, if you're here this morning and Jesus Christ is your Savior, you're a loved one of him. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But nobody likes to wait. We want to know right now how things are going to turn out. Will I get that job? Is that person going to marry me? Will I get into college? Am I ever going to feel better? Will the Browns ever win the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah, you know. Praise God for sending Joe Flacco, right? <laughs> we live in a society that wants instant information. Computers and phones within three years are obsolete. We want things that are faster. We want internet speeds that are increasing. We don't like to wait. But the Bible is full of examples of people waiting on God to fulfill his promises. Think about Abraham. I mean, this guy, you know, he's 75 years old when God promises him he's gonna have, he and Sarah were gonna have a child. 24 years later, 99, Sarah becomes pregnant and when Abraham's 100, he and Sarah have Isaac. It's a long time to wait for God's promise. Joseph was sold into slavery, you know, by his brothers. He spent many years languishing in prison before rising to prominence in Egypt and seeing his family again. David was anointed king by Samuel. He spent many years on the run, hiding from Saul, until he was able to take his place on the throne as king of Israel. In our instinct, when God delays, it's, it's probably to feel a little unloved. Yet Jesus shows us that when God delays, he does so because he loves us. And that seems like a paradox. You know, hey, if two minutes go by and somebody hasn't returned my text message, I don't think they love me anymore. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, three minutes, you know. Uh, no, we want, we want instant information. We don't want to wait. But God's delay is not a sign of distance, but it is a deep affection as we're going to see, and it's a desire to give us something better than we could ever ask for. So why does God make us wait? Well, let's continue the story and see what we can learn from this interaction in verse four. But when Jesus heard it, and what did he hear? He, back in verse three, Lord, the one that you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, when Jesus spoke those words, more than likely, Lazarus was already dead. By the time they sent message, and that message got to Jesus, Lazarus would have passed away. 
Because when Jesus did get there, he'd been dead for four days. It's about a two-day trip. We're gonna see that Jesus delays for two days. Okay, but he knew, Jesus knew, that all of this was going to take place to bring glory to his Father and not end in death. He also knew that, that bringing Lazarus back to life was gonna be risky because the religious leaders of the time were not going to like that. They're gonna become even more determined to try and kill Jesus. And in fact, it's a very short time after that where we, we read about Jesus' crucifixion and of course his own resurrection. But what we see in this story, the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and David, and even today in our own experiences and waiting for Lord is this, filled in this next point, God is exalted in the waiting. He is exalted in the waiting. Now to exalt or to glorify, as Jesus puts it, means to raise to the highest of heights. To exalt God is to raise God to the highest places in our lives, is to give him first place in every thought in our mind, in every word that we speak, in every action that we take. And Jesus tells us that the purpose for Lazarus's illness and death and Jesus' own delaying and going to Bethany was that ultimately God was going to be glorified. He was going to be exalted. He was going to be raised to the highest place in people's minds, thoughts, actions, and words. Look, when God waits to show up, it's not because he's teasing us. It's not because he's a procrastinator. When God waits to show up, it's because he's preparing you and me to see him in such a way that he receives the maximum glory. He will reveal himself in ways that we never imagined. It's not because God is some kind of a cosmic egomaniac, and it's not because God enjoys playing with our emotions. The reason that God wants us to experience his maximum exaltation is simply this, that's to increase my faith and to increase your faith. Christ told the disciples it was for the glory of God, so he waited in order to show something to his disciples that they had never seen before. They've seen miracles, they've seen him feeding 5,000, they've seen him even raising the dead, but not after four days. They, they've seen him uh, calm the storm, they know about his miracles, but this was something even greater that they hadn't yet experienced. And our faith oftentimes needs that kind of boost. God knows it, and he's willing to wait to act so that our faith can be transformed and increased. Well, John continues his narrative by reaffirming that Jesus did indeed love these three siblings. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So this is an important reminder. Look, showing, it shows that a testing of their faith was not a denial of his love. And that's for you and me too. When God tests our faith, it is not a denial of his love. It's an elevation of his love. The separate mention of the three persons here is to show that God loves them individually, not because of their family. God doesn't love us because who our mom and dads are. God doesn't love us because who our grandparents are. God doesn't love us because where we live. 
God doesn't love us because of our economic status. God loves us because he created us. He doesn't love us because who we are. He loves us because who he is. And he is our heavenly father. He simply loves us because we are his creation. And that's why this next verse is pretty confusing. This is where it gets to be a little dicey. We, we kind of wonder, what, what's going on here? Verse 6, so when he, again, Jesus, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. People read that and oftentimes don't understand. Just like people don't understand why God would make Abraham wait 100 years for Isaac to be born and then tell him to go sacrifice him. Well, that's why we take the whole Bible and read it. Because Hebrews 11 explains that Abraham had faith and knew that he would see Isaac again. Just like here, we don't understand at first reading why Jesus might wait for two days when the one that he loves is ill, when the two sisters that he loves are agonizing over their brother being sick and now dying. It seems strange that he does not immediately act upon this great need. And I'm sure it was puzzling, not only for the disciples, but for Mary and Martha as well. And here's the truth that I need to really grab onto and perhaps something that you will appreciate as well. God's delays are not denials. God's delays are not denials. Are there times that God says no to our requests? Certainly, but guess what? When God says no, that's still not a denial. It's because he's saying no because it's what's best for us. There are times I'm sure I've asked God for X, Y, Z, and God knows you can't handle that. That's not appropriate for you. That's not something that's going to help you. And so God's delays are not denials. But God does hear our prayers. And look, he hears them immediately. He answers them immediately. We don't always see the answer immediately. Sometimes we do. But his yes, his no, his wait, it's already been declared. We just have to be patient and see it play out. And including the story of Lazarus, John's gospel records three times altogether where someone dear to Jesus asked him to do something. Look at John chapter two, verse three and four. It'll be on the screen. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This is of course of the wedding at Cana where Jesus did his first miracle. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so Jesus' mother is wanting an immediate intervention. Jesus, you need to do something about this situation with the wine. Jesus doesn't come out and say it here, but his answer is wait. John chapter 7, verses 2 through 3 and verse 8. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Jesus' brothers, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. In verse 8. You go up to the feast. 
I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And so Jesus is saying to his brothers, hey, I'm not ready. I, I know you want me to do this. It's not appropriate at this moment. It's not what my heavenly Father has in store for me to do. And in each of these cases, the mother, the brothers, Lazarus, Jesus responds the same way. He makes us wait. And in doing so, he teaches us that God's plan works within God's timing. Well, the next two verses, the next few verses are going to again continue leaving the disciples confused and, and a little bit afraid for their, their well-being. Verses 7 through 10 says, Then after this, he says to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples are not happy with that. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? In other words, hey, you might have a death wish, but we don't want to go up there and have rocks thrown at us. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And basically at the end there, he's saying, look, I have an allotted time here. My heavenly father has put me here for, for reasons and for a certain amount of time. And I'm going to do what my heavenly father has called me to do. And with Mary and Martha, uh, you know, Jesus waits when they wanted him to go. With the disciples, Jesus goes when they want him to wait. And, and what they learn from this puzzling behavior is, is what we need to learn as well, is that there are times that God, for his own reason, that we may never understand until we stand before him after we ourselves are resurrected or raptured, we might never know until we are in heaven. And the fact of the matter is this, we're probably not gonna like it here on earth, this waiting, this not knowing God's reasons, but we just need to trust him, his motives, and his timing. Make no mistake, while we are waiting, God is not idle. He is acting. And that's our next point. And you'll have to forgive me, there's a typo on your outline. It's kind of like at school when I photocopy something and, oh, I see a mistake in the Spanish here, and I'll give the kids a bonus point if the first one to find a mistake. Sorry, I got no bonus points for you guys. But uh, take out that word is. It should read, God acts during the waiting. God acts during the waiting. And we might be tempted to ask ourselves, well, what did Jesus really accomplish in this time of waiting? He waits two days. He, wait, he makes Mary and Martha wait four days before they see him. And what effect does it have on us when we are waiting for the Lord? Do we allow the waiting to increase our time in prayer? Do we allow the waiting to cause us to dig deeper into God's word? Does our faith grow or shrink? Do we turn to other distractions to help us pass the time during this waiting? Well, Jesus' waiting had several positive accomplishments then and even now. Look, in verse 42, we read that it helped with people's belief. In verse 25, 
His delay demonstrates Jesus' power over death and the grave. In verse 15, we read that it increases the faith of his followers. In verse 45, it drew more people to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. In verse 42 also, his delay allows us to know that, when, that Jesus was sent by God the Father. And then finally, probably the most important result of all of his delay is that eventually it prepared people to believe in his own resurrection after his soon approaching death on the cross. And so we see here that God is acting in several ways through Jesus' delay. And the fact of the matter is when he delays in responding to us, when he delays what we perceive as his delay in answering our prayer, he is still acting. While we continue reading here, again, Jesus' conversation with the disciples, verse 11 to 15, it says, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Once again, they don't quite get what he's saying. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Come on, guys, don't you get it? I was just kind of being nice by saying he fell asleep. Look, Lazarus is dead. He says it plainly. But he says, I am glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so our last point this morning on our outline is this. We grow in faith through the waiting. We grow in faith through the waiting. God's delay teaches us to trust him even more. Look, if we get what we want immediately, if God is nothing more than this cosmic vending machine that we put 75 cents into and get a candy bar, we'll never learn the persistence in prayer. If we snap our fingers and make God act, we become lazy in our faith, let's, let's face it. We become dull. So we see our faith develop, we see our faith grow through the waiting. James tells us later on in his letter the purpose of waiting and what it produces in us. James chapter one, verses two to four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's difficult. I'm sure somebody said to Mary and Martha, rejoice that your brother is dead. That would probably not be met very well. But James is telling us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's a reason why we wait. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God makes us wait so that we can be perfect, we can be complete, that we would not be lacking in anything regarding our faith. And it would be nearly impossible for Mary and Martha and disciples in the crowd to rejoice in the death of their brother Lazarus. You know, there's a lot of things that are, that are impossible for us as followers of Jesus Christ if it weren't for the grace that God gives to his children. If it weren't for God's mercy and love 
in grace, we would all probably want to check out of here a long time ago because everyone in this room has experienced what it means to wait for God to answer us. And the completeness that Mary and Martha's waiting were produced is told to us in the last two verses of our text this morning, verses 14 and 15, that Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, and for Mary's sake, and for Martha's sake, and for the crowd's sake, and for the, the believers in the 21st century's sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Look, instant gratification on the spiritual level might seem like a good thing. God doesn't want us to, to God doesn't want to give us what we think is good. God wants to give us what is best. And his delay is not his withholding in what is best for you and for me. You know, there is a particular aspect of his glory, his power, his character, and his nature, which he is ready to reveal to us. But often we only see it after a period of waiting. And again, his desire is always not what's good for us, but what's best for us. Our impatience sometimes get in the way. I know mine does. I can be a very impatient person. But it gets in the way of us receiving that best gift from our God. And when God delays, we shouldn't doubt his goodness. We should continue in prayer. We should be confident in love. And we need to wait for his perfect timing to reveal his plan for our lives. It's a plan that includes forgiveness and peace and grace and mercy and love and ultimately life everlasting in his presence in heaven. And that life that's eternal, it begins the very day that you invite Jesus into your life and you put your faith and trust in him. Look, the same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, who healed the sick, he, he fed the hungry, he encouraged the desperate, he himself raised from the grave. He has all of these wonderful offerings ready for you and ready for me. If we're just sometimes willing to wait and receive what's best. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more sermons like this, visit us online at gracechapel.cc.